live from a studio audience in Burbank, California. It is the Takes It Took a Movie podcast with your hosts, Mariah, Miles, and Stefan. I was going to say, like I don't a... know if we have much of a studio audience. We'll just pretend. I mean, I got, I got some Lego guys. I got some Lego guys to watch us. Oh, I they're got watching. I'll, I'll put in some applause here. Okay. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Takes a Take a Movie podcast. Um, you ready to talk about movies? Yeah. Today on the docket, we have the classic film, Casablanca. But before we get into that, we like to do a little segment where we just, you know, talk about movies we've seen recently. Just give you a little recaps. Got a routine. Ease you into the podcast. So uh, without further ado. I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. All right, Miles, what have you seen? I think we should all talk about something. Yeah. I think we should all. We shared together. I think we should do it together. Um, as a group, we went and watched just a, a fun little movie. <laughs> Poor things. Poor things. Wow. What a movie, huh, guys? You went into that completely blind, I went right? into that shit oh, yes. 100% blind. That I did is... not know what I was getting myself into. I wish I had that experience, actually. Did you know what was going on? Did uh, you know? I didn't know it would be quite what it was, but I knew it was going to be weird. I knew it was going to be bonkers. I did not expect to see so many titties. Yeah, and wieners. Uh, yeah, and French people. Oh, worst part. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just, it was it was a lot. <laughs> Willem Dafoe did a great job. Yeah, the problem is we can't really talk about everything that happens in it, just because for the sake of if you want to watch it, yeah. you need to be able to go in knowing very little. Experience Experience it for yourself. Just know that... There is a lot of explicit sex scenes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, make sure you're alone, the lights off. or I don't know if this is one you want to take your mom to. No. You know? Mm-mm. I do plan on taking my grandma, though. <laughs> mm. Mm-hmm. I will say, I do think it is a very good insight into what it is to be human and yeah. see other humans be humans and how terrible they can be, but also how good they can be. Yeah. All right. Stefan, what have you seen? Okay, so related to our movie theater going experience, actually, when I was in the theater, I saw a trailer for a movie with monkeys. Oh, yeah. And New Planet of the Apes, or uh-huh. Kingdom of the Apes, I believe it is, is going to be coming out. And last week, or maybe it was the week before, I watched the last of the new trilogy of the Planet of the Apes movies, War for Planet of the Apes, with Woody Harrelson, and of course, Andy Serkis as Caesar. And uh, I didn't like it as much as the second movie. I actually think the second movie is the best of the three. Okay. Because the third one, it's just got some crazy stuff where it's like, oh, there's like this new disease and it makes the people go monkey. And I'm like, huh? And there's just like a couple of bits I didn't like. I do think it is still good. It makes the it makes the people go monkey. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of the monkey go people? Yeah. So it was it just kind of felt like heavy handed, like, oh, I I get it. The people go monkey, the monkey go people. Huh. Uh, so Classic. I, just, I, I kind of, I don't know. I didn't like that aspect of it, but I think the second one is really good. The thing that I'm not super hyped with, with this new movie is that they're talking, they're speaking with their mouths. And in these new trilogies, they use sign language. And I, I find that so much more like believable, even though it is monkeys running around doing stuff. Yeah. They use sign language. They, they talk every once in a while, like certain words because they don't really have like speech down. 
And like right. Caesar is the only one who really talks. And so he can like form a sentence when he talks to people sometimes. But for the most part, they always do sign language. And I just, I don't know. I think it makes monkeys cooler when they sign language. I think it makes them cool too. It makes more sense too. Yeah. But anyways, I watched the third one. Monkeys fight people with guns. Yo. Yeah. If you like monkeys, watch them. Well, I watched a few movies since we last spoke. The one that I think I'm going to talk about is Gladiator. This year, both Stefan and myself have kind of talked about, not on the podcast, but just off the podcast, how we kind of want to focus on maybe quality instead of quantity, mm-hmm. <laughs> which our goal last year was 365 watches. Yes. Um, so so I compiled a list of movies that I, th- I think I should watch and movies that also, when you say you've never seen them, people go, you've never seen that? Yeah. So um, I watched Gladiator for the yep. first time. Same. And I'll say I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Um, I think, yeah, some of the editing of, and I mean, cinematography of the fight scenes was rather jarring and not mm-hmm. the most cohesive or enjoyable for me personally. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think Russell Crowe did a very good job. Yeah, and, uh, he snots pretty good. <laughs> and uh, I-, I liked it. So now I can say that I've seen Gladiator. Is that the movie that was like, oh, someone got trampled by horses and died, but they like they didn't? Um, probably not. It might have been like Ben Hur or something. You're thinking of is is there a like a because there's like what's the fucking race with horses? Yeah, the chariot. Yeah, I the think chariot Ben Hur is the movie about chariot racing. That's oh. really old, and I know they did have a lot of accidents on set, oh. with people like falling off or getting hurt on the chariots. But Ben Hur, I barely know her. <laughs> All right, well, I think that kind of wraps up our little segment on what we've seen recently. Mm. And now, let's get into it. All right, so Casablanca, 1942, directed by Michael Curtiz. This film is widely considered one of the best and most influential films of all time. If you look up any top 100 movie list, even a top 10 movie list, it's probably on there. So we're going to get into it. And for all of you guys who maybe have not seen it recently or possibly haven't seen it at all, We're going to do a little summary for you, so you're all caught up, you know what we're talking about, you're not confused, you're not lost. So, I've written out a summary for both Stefan and Miles to read, and without further ado, Stefan, take it away. It's December 1941 in Casablanca, Morocco. Rick's Cafe is a hub for refugees from World War II, Nazi officials, Vichy France officials, which are pro-Nazi France, French resistance fighters, and people just straight up vacationing and ignoring all of that, which would be me. Amidst all of that, most people are trying to obtain transit papers to get out and into safer countries during the war. Transit papers cost a lot and need official signatures to be valid. Rick Blaine, the owner, tries to remain as neutral as possible and not be involved in politics, although he has a history of running guns in Ethiopia against the Italians, and fighting on the loyalist side the loyalist side in the Spanish Civil War, although the loyalist slide does sound pretty fun. Ugarte, a man who sells transit papers, confides in Rick one night that he killed two couriers for transit papers and asks Rick to hold on to the papers for just an hour as he finishes up his business. Lost my space. Rick agrees and ends up hiding the papers in his piano player, Sam's Piano. Unfortunately for Ugarte, the Vichy police captain, Louis Renault, arrests him for the murder of German carriers, and he is killed before Ugarte can meet up with his contact and sells the transit, sell, sell the transit papers. 
Renault also chats with Rick about how Victor Laszlo, a Czech resistance fighter, has entered Casablanca with a woman and will no doubt be looking for transit papers, and Renault asks Rick to make sure Laszlo never gets them. Right after that, who should enter but Victor Laszlo and his wife? And this woman happens to be Rick's former lover, Ilsa, with whom he shared a passionate romance with in Paris right before the Germans invaded. And speaking of Germans, Major Strasser from Germany also arrives in an attempt to keep Laszlo basically in limbo in Casablanca and make sure he never leaves. There's a long flashback showing how their romance started and when they planned to get on a train out of Paris. Ilsa never showed up. Instead, sending a letter telling Rick she can't explain why, but he needs to leave without her. Eventually, Laszlo finds out that Rick has a has the transit papers and tries to buy them, but Rick refuses and tells him to ask Ilsa why. A night or two later, Ilsa goes to Rick to ask for the transit papers as well, but when Rick refuses, she pulls that gat on him and threatens him. Eventually, she reveals that when she first met Rick in Paris, she was already married to Laszlo, but believed him dead in a concentration camp. And the reason she left him at the train station with the letter was because the night before, she had learned that he was actually alive. Sucks to be Rick. That was pretty heavy. Yeah. This changes how Rick views Ilsa and Laszlo and finally agrees to help. He then basically plays everyone, telling Ilsa he'll put Laszlo on a plane, but she can stay with him, and also tells Renault, who has been trying to catch Laszlo, that he'll help Renault out by letting him catch Laszlo in possession of the letters while he and Ilsa leave. But when Renault shows up to arrest Laszlo, Rick pulls that gat on him and gets them all to the airport. However, Renault has signaled to his buddy Strazer, Strazer? Strazer? Strazer. Strazer? Strazer to come to the airport, and Rick ends up shooting the Nazi officer to stop him from calling for more police. Pop off my boy. Rick then sends Ilsa and Laszlo off on the plane, telling Ilsa that she'll regret staying with him and that she needs to be with Laszlo as he continues to fight, uh, continues his fight. Then Rick and Renault walk off into the fog together, buddies, because the good guy escaped and the Nazi is dead. And That's... that is Casablanca. Very long-winded, but it's kind of a complex story, so I wanted to make sure that we got all the names and kind of structure down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's get into it. Sure thing, kid. Casablanca is based on the unproduced play called Everybody Comes to Rick's, written by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison in 1940, before the U.S. entered World War II, which would, of course, be December 7th, 1941, after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And very much like the film, the play was extremely anti-Nazi and very pro-French resistance. Hot take. So in, <laughs> yeah, you're a hot take going up against the Nazis. <laughs> um, so in 1938, two years before he co-wrote the play, Murray Bennett, sorry, Murray Burnett. Can I get uh, where these people are from? U.S. Oh. Yeah. So it's written by Americans before they enter the war mm-hmm. about French resistance. Yes. Okay. okay. So two years before he co-wrote the play, Murray Burnett had been traveling with his wife, Frances, during a summer vacation from teaching, and they visited Vienna, which had been invaded by the Nazis just a few months prior on March 12th. 
And they went to Vienna to specifically help their Jewish relatives smuggle money out of the country. Oh. And a bit later in their travels, they went to the south of France, and they went to a nightclub that sat right on the Mediterranean Sea. And in this nightclub, they watched this black pianist play jazz for French people, Nazis, and refugees. Does that mm. sound familiar? It, it, a little bit. Mm. So mm. upon his return to the U.S., Burnett began coming up with this play and over the course of six weeks wrote it with Joan Allison. However, they right. could not find a Broadway producer, partially because one of the notes of feedback they got was concerned that Ilsa had slept with Rick to get the transit papers, which of course was scandalous. Mm. Despite this, Burnett and Allison were able to sell the play to Warner Brothers producer Hal B. Wallace for $20,000, which is about $420,000 today, which was unheard of back then, especially for two unknown writers. Mm. But Warner liked it and saw its potential. Okay. And with that, they sent it off to Casey Robinson for rewrites. And Robinson okay. wrote for a lot of Betty Davis films, and he focused on the romance and chemistry between Lois who would eventually become Ilsa in the film, and Rick. Oddly enough, Casey Robinson gets almost no credit for his work in this. Okay. He only wanted credit in films that he wrote 100% himself. Mm. So he just was like, don't put my name on it. Uh, okay. Right. Anyway, so Robinson then sent it to the twin brothers Julius and Philip Epstein, who worked on the structure of the story and the dialogue. In 1942, the director Frank Capra, who directed It's a Wonderful mm. Life, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, he, he asked for help from the Epsteins on some propaganda films for the country because at this point the U.S. had entered the war. Um, so they actually left the project and gave it over to Howard Koch, who his focus was just kind of on the politics of it all and how the French resistance, Vichy France, like Nazi, how that all worked in well, Casablanca. I'm, I'm just now realizing that if this movie was made during World War II, mm -hmm. that they have like... Nazi uniforms and shit. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that. That'd be crazy. Oh, fuck, really? Mm -hmm. Oh. So the Epsteins eventually came back from working with Frank Capra, and they would continue to work, although the two brothers and Howard Koch actually never worked in the same room together. Oh. And Koch mm. became the only writer that was on set and was doing rewrites as filming would happen. And uh, throughout the writing process, the writers were constantly having the censor board just breathe down their neck, which made the writing process take a lot longer and restrict possibilities for the story. One of the things I saw was Renault has a line. Originally, it was going to be like, you enjoy something, I enjoy women. But they had to change it to like, you like something, I like women. Like they just had to change enjoy to like. Weird. Mm. Yeah. In terms of the differences between the play and the film... Koch said that in his opinion, Burnett and Allison's play had created the, quote, spine of the story, and that he and all the other writers made it what it is today, which mm. Burnett disagrees with. <laughs> I was gonna, that sounds very, I made it, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> to be like, well, they only had the spine. It was really me that made it what it is today. Yeah. Like, I'm the meat. All right. All right, buddy. Um, one of the biggest things that stayed consistent from the play to the film was including the song As Time Goes By. Mm. Um, Burnett had specifically put that in um, because it was his favorite song in school and he just really loved it. And he thought it also really worked for that past romance mm. aspect. Play it again, Sam. Play Good For You by Olivia Rodrigo. And we'll get into the fact that you just misquoted the movie, not by including I Olivia know. Rodrigo. 
but saying play you, it again. You play it once again or whatever the hell. No, we'll get into that. But like I mentioned, Ilsa was originally Lois. Um, mm-hmm. And I know you guys just want to do family guy. I want to just solve that. I'll, I'll fight it. <laughs> All right, I'll give you 10 seconds. Okay. <laughs> and Lois. Uh, Peter. Peter, I wrote a script, Peter. I'm in the, I'm in the movie, Peter. <laughs> okay. Another thing is that she originally did not meet Laszlo until after her relationship with Rick, mm. which was, I guess, more appropriate. Mm. Um, the play, in true play fashion, also takes place entirely in the cafe. Yeah. So Rick, at the end, just sends Lois and Laszlo off from the cafe. He just says, like, goodbye from there. So there's no airport or anything. Um, the biggest change that almost happened was that Wallace, the producer, wanted Laszlo to die so that oh. Ilsa and Rick could end up together. Okay. Um, they decided to set it before Pearl Harbor because, if I remember correctly, it had to do with the fact that it kind of made Rick's intentions a little bit more um, pure. Like, it didn't muddy the waters even more. I was going to say, like... The, because he's American. The concept of American post-Pearl Harbor being like, I don't know, Germans, like, whatever. Yeah. It'd be like, yeah. oh, you gotta, like, punch them in the face when you see them. Yeah, yeah could, to have Rick be this, like... I don't care about the politics of any of this. You can't. Yeah. Like you can't you just do that can't after. Have him, yeah, yeah. You can't have his country in the war. But yeah, uh, originally the the producer, Halby Wallace, wanted Laszlo to die so that Ilsa and Rick could end up together. However, Casey Robinson, again, the uncredited writer, urged him not to. And he wrote him saying, quote, set up for a swell twist when Rick sends her away on the plane with Laszlo. For now, in doing so, he is not just solving a love triangle. He's forcing the girl to live up to the idealism of her nature, forcing her to carry on with the work that in these days is far more important than the love of two little people, which is essentially what Rick says at the end, which he says, Mm -hmm. like, three small people don't amount to a pile of beans in this crazy world or whatever the line is. Yeah. It sounds appropriate. I know how much those... People in the 40s love their beans. Don't amount to a, three small beans on top of a pile of other beans. <laughs> yeah. Um, and because of the motion picture production code, Warner couldn't possibly show a woman leaving her husband for someone else. Um, yeah. So they focused on how to make the ending stick of Ilsa still kind of staying true to Laszlo. And the two brothers, the two Epstein brothers, uh, they recount that they were driving home one night. And then simultaneously, they turned to each other and said, round up the usual suspects, which is a line that's uttered earlier on in the film. And they realized they could use that for Renault to say, and they said, well, if the, if we reuse the line, round up the usual suspects, that means that there's been a murder. And who do we want to die? The Nazi. And who do we want to kill the Nazi? Rick. And so they just kind of worked it mm. around that. And that's mm. how they got the ending. And Rick kind of becomes this noble man sending the love of his life off right. to go help the war, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how noble to just choose not to be a homewrecker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very noble. All right, now let's talk about who's going to direct this thing. At the very beginning, I mentioned that the director was Michael Curtis, mm. who was not Wallace's first pick. He initially wanted William Wyler, but Wyler was unavailable, and he turned to his buddy, Curtis. So well, he was busy trying to capture that wily rabbit. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So... Who is Michael Curtis? I'm glad you asked, Miles. Because for me, personally, I really didn't know who he was before researching this movie. No. Um, which I find odd since, you know, for instance, we know Frank Capra directed It's a Wonderful Life. And William Wyler, who I just mentioned, did Ben-Hur. And Orson Welles did Citizen Kane and so on. But I feel like if you ask somebody who directed 
Casablanca, if they're not like into film, they're going to be like, I have no clue. Oh. Yeah. So I'm just going to tell you guys a little bit about him because okay. he's very interesting. So Michael Curtis was a Hungarian-born director who directed numerous silent and talking pictures in Hungary before getting scooped up to help out the up-and-coming Warner Brothers studio in Hollywood in 1926. And at this point, he was 39 years old and had already directed 64 films oh my God. over in Europe. He would go on to direct another 102 films in Hollywood and turn Errol Flynn, Doris Day, and Betty Davis into stars. So this man's directed a couple hundred movies, and I only know one. And even then, I couldn't place his name to it. Uh, you'll know. I'll mention a couple, and I think oh, okay. you'll recognize them. He helped popularize the swashbuckler films again with Errol Flynn. Flynn. Mm. Um, he directed dramas. He directed musicals, including White Christmas. I don't know. Um, he did comedies. He's also responsible. Wait, is is White Christmas the one where he doesn't exist anymore? No, that's It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, yeah. I don't know it. Um, I was like, I could talk. No. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he is also responsible for Congress and the ASPCA passing legislation to prevent cruelty to animals, uh, but not okay. in a good way. Oh. Um, while he was directing the film The Charge of the Light Brigade, a total of 25 horses died during production. Um, Errol <laughs> Flynn was working on that, and... Uh, <laughs> How he many? became almost violent with Curtis. Horse lives are cheap. <laughs> How many horses are in the movie? I don't know, but with? 25 of them died. 25 horses? I feel like most movies don't even have 25 horses in it. So, yeah. So, so like, It was because of the, the horse shooting scene. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> they just had to keep redoing it. Uh, so, yeah, that's a real black mark on his legacy um but what most filmmakers credit him with is he was very influential in combining the movement of the camera with crane movements dollies etc with the movement of actors to create almost like a dance on screen Mm. he also used very creative lighting which you pointed out while we were watching it miles i Um, did and again this basically everything he did he used to highlight the story and elevate it and the very kind of standard, typically still flat look that a lot of older movies have. Mm-hmm. So if you really pay attention to Casablanca, the camera moves a lot. There's a lot of very interesting lighting choices going on. You have like the watch light up at the top constantly, you know, spinning mm-hmm. and yeah. going through the set. There's blinds. There's a lot of textures uh, in the backgrounds of the sets. I mean, they kind of look like sets, but it kind of works for that. Creates a lot of lines in contrast. The soft lighting on Ingrid Bergman is like beautiful. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Stefan, I remember you saying something specific about that. I just, I don't like when they do the soft lighting, like soft focus, like, oh, she's so pretty. I just, I don't like it. I think it, it takes you out of the movie. She, it's like they're in a different world. It cuts away and you're like, oh, look at her. And it's like, oh, my glasses on? Like, oh, shit. Like, well, she looks different. I don't like it. Perhaps do be blurry. It's blurry. And I don't, I think also one of the biggest reasons I don't like it is because it's for a very vain effect. Mm. It's not like, it's like just to make her look better, or I guess to maybe a perspective being like, oh, this is, you could argue like, oh, this is what she looks like in the eyes of Rick. And like, this is how he's, you're trying to make her look pretty. And I just think it's kind of shallow. And yeah, I just want to say, I know that's what Hollywood was then. It was just the celebrities and the actresses and the actors and making them look good, but like it. Well, I would shoot myself if I had to live in that town forever because the the idea of this light constantly circling. <laughs> I don't like a lighthouse. I, I mean, I guess that's why you want to live in a lighthouse is because you're yeah. the only person immune to its constant <laughs> gaze. 
Yeah, I am the gazer. <laughs> anyway, so that's just a little summary on Curtiz for you. And mm. with that out of the way, we can get back to Casablanca. Thanks, Crouton. So once he was selected by Warner to direct, Curtiz was very much not involved in the pre-production process. Cool. Casey Robinson said Curtiz, quote, knew nothing whatever about story. He saw it in pictures and you supplied the stories. And even though the film critic Andrew Sarah stated that his direction in Casablanca is, quote, the most decisive exception to the auteur theory, other critics challenge us and say that Curtiz himself stated that he liked to focus on human interest aspect of the stories and that, quote, human and fundamental problems of real people were the basis of all good drama, which I do believe that you can see in Casablanca. Yeah. And with a director chosen, let's get to casting. Uh, Kind of just like today, it's based almost entirely on an actor's sellability. Mm. For those of you that don't know, back in the day, typically an actor was tied to a studio and just had a studio contract. So it wasn't necessarily if they wanted them for a film. It was just whatever Warner was making, Warner actors did. Yes. So do you think Chris Pratt would be Rick? (laughs) Or mm. Laszlo. Garfield. I think he'd be Ugarte. Okay. Uh, nope. <laughs> My courier passes. I don't know. So Dickies Clark. in your piano. In your piano, sir. Your Peter Laurie impressions aren't bad. Thank you. He's, um, he has a very unique voice. He does. So Clark Gable was who Joan Allison envisioned when she and Burnett were writing the play, but she obviously didn't have any say in who they actually cast. Mm. Um, at Warner, it was between George Raft, James Cagney, and Humphrey Bogart, but Halby Wallace, the producer, said, hey, Warner, look at this contract. I get to choose who I want, and I want Bogart. So it was kind of him from the beginning. And for some reason, Warner sent out an announcement that Ronald Reagan was going to play Rick. That's sick as fuck. Um, That's that, hell yeah. With the monkey, too? <laughs> I fucking but, love it. But it was it's believed that they kind of did this as a stunt simply to keep like his name in the papers for relevancy. Rita Hayworth was reportedly considered for Ilsa, but from most of what I've seen, it just it had to be Ingrid Bergman. Mm. However, Ingrid Bergman was under a contract with David O. Selznick, so Warner and Selznick basically set up a, a switch <laughs> and a loan where Okay. Warner would get Bergman for Casablanca and Selznick would get the actress Olivia de Havilland for a picture for him. This is like what streaming companies do now. They're like, all right, oh, you, you give us Band of Brothers, we'll give you Big Mouth. All right, so uh, let's get into the production of this. There's actually not that much on the filmmaking. It's pretty yeah. standard, um, except for the fact that they went into production with half a script done. Mm. Uh, At this point, that's... For the movies we cover, that's not crazy anymore. <laughs> so, have a script and a director who was not super involved in the development process. Production was scheduled for April 10th, 1942. <gasps> After my birthday. There was a delay that I, I couldn't really find the reason for, but filming really began May 25th, wrapped on August 3rd for a total of 59 days of filming. Okay. Their budget was just under a million dollars, and by the end of it, they ended up $75,000 over for a total of one million. $39,000, which is the equivalent of $18.6 million today. Oh. And in 1942, this bad. was just a little bit above average for a film budget and what we would still kind of call modest today. Wow, oh, okay. There's a $1 to $18 inflation rate in the 40s. Damn. Um, what's interesting about this production is that it was filmed entirely in order. Now, part of this mm. oh, wait, is really? because they only had 
the first half of the script ready so they could oh, only really work on the first right. half and then they just had howard coke like rewriting as they went um and he's quoted as saying quote when we began we didn't have a finished script ingrid bergman came to me and said which man should i love more i said to her i don't know play them both evenly hmm. you see we didn't have an ending so we didn't know what was going to happen Mm. And that was one thing that I saw is that Ingrid Bergman kind of like struggled with the fact that she's like, I don't know my end point. Yeah. So I don't know how to play this. Well, you know what they should have done is very similar to American Psycho where they had William Defoe do like three different takes. Mm. Was it two different takes? Yeah. It was like two or three different takes when he's interrogating. Yeah. It was like, like he doesn't know. He did know. And he's like oblivious or something. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So if they had done it where like, oh, you love him more. You love them equally. You love the other guy more. Then they could have, like, mixed and match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they didn't. <laughs> Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Yeah. They got to, like, think for that. Yeah. Implying, um, implying the filmmakers of Casablanca didn't, <laughs> like, think. didn't think and skimped. <laughs> so Casablanca was filmed entirely on the Warner Brothers Studio lots in Burbank, California, um, <gasps> oh! with the exception of Strasser's arrival in the close-up of the plane, um, which were filmed at the Van Nuys Airport. Wow. We throw in some stock footage of Paris. and well, some I've stock- actually been to both those places. That's wow. actually pretty cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. You're part of um, history. And then they just yeah. use stock footage of Casablanca and Paris and boom, you're there. It works. It works. Um, Rick's Cafe was the only set that was built specifically for Casablanca and the rest of the sets were actually recycled from old films because of a material shortage for World War II. Mm. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So yeah. a lot of the sets are just used from like late 30s yeah. films that Warner had Made done. Made out of corn. Yeah, so it's like, um, for instance... Probably planes were in short demand yeah. or short supply, high demand, short supply. And yeah. now that you mention it, we can get to the fact that for that last scene, as I pointed out while we were watching it, if you notice when Rick sends off Ilsa and Laszlo, the plane in the background is just a cardboard cutout of a plane. Mm. And then they used little people in the background to match the proportions. And then yes. they just kind of added fog to hide the fact that it was a shitty cardboard cutout. Yo. Fog, rain, and darkness. That's all you need to cover up everything you could ever desire. Which they did use this technique in Alien as well. Mm. They used mm-hmm. it in yeah, there's like Blade a, Runner too. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you have any more on that plane, specifically when we see that it's not a cardboard cutout? No. Is it a miniature? I've, I think it's just a miniature, right? I have no... Oh, okay. I, she doesn't know, Stefan. I, I, Stop asking. Was it like a scale model though? Not a miniature, but like a scale mod. Like, oh, wait, the, the oh, cardboard cutout? No, the plane when it's moving. Like, I she think doesn't it's just know. a real ass plane. She like, doesn't know. Like smaller than a plane, she but bigger doesn't, than she a doesn't miniature. Know. I don't know, know how to convey anymore to you guys that I don't fucking know the answer. I, my I, bet's on miniature. I, I don't know. So they shot this in order. So this last scene was kind of the last thing that they filmed once they figured out the ending that they wanted. And in a telegram to the editor, Owen Marks, just days after they wrapped, Hal B. Wallace suggested two possible final lines of dialogue for Rick. Mm. Louis, I might have known you'd mix your patriotism with a little larceny. Or, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. He obviously decided to go with the second option, and Humphrey Bogart came in and dubbed that last line because it's their backs when he says that. Um, so now we're going to talk about the actors on set because Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman have... Bergman. Bergman. Ingrid Bergman, uh, they've got great chemistry on on camera. Yeah. That was not the case at all 
on set. Um, I wouldn't say they had a strained relationship per se, but they certainly were not close and basically never talked on set to each other. They were just like co-workers through and through. Yes. Um, at this point, Bergman had numerous affairs with co-stars and directors throughout the years. Um, going so far, this I mean, this is in the future, but in 1950, she was denounced and shamed on the U.S. Senate floor. What? For having a child out of wedlock with the Italian director, Roberto Rossellini. Oh, my God. She kind of had a little bit of a reputation, which I think had something to do with it. It's like Game of Thrones level of, like, shaming. That is. Well, why? Um, so, yeah, the two did not talk much during set with Bergman stating, I kissed him, but I never knew him. Um, Bogart's That's wife, a fire line, though. It, it is. That's fire. Oh, Isn't damn. Isn't it crazy? Looking back on, like, how the censor boards are breathing down their necks and watching every word that's written and critiquing how the actors live their lives. And just last weekend, we went and saw Poor Things. Yeah. And that, 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 that's fine. Not that only movie, does that fly, it's nominated. Yeah. That movie could not have existed. What a world. So yeah, Bogart's wife was convinced that her husband was having an affair with Ingrid Bergman um, and would confront Humphrey Bogart hmm. and basically just put him in a bad mood right before he got <laughs> to set, which kind of works for the character. Yeah. Rick you is know? a grumpy guy. Um, yes. He was also convinced that Casablanca was the worst film he'd been a part of since they didn't have an ending. He never knew what his character was going to do the next day. He just didn't have a very good time. Um, he's also responsible for having his character Rick be a chess player. As he was one himself, he would play in tournaments and he'd oh, play yeah. cast and crew in between shooting scenes. Um, but I believe that the board, as you see it in the film... is really early on in the match. Yeah, but I believe he was playing by mail with a friend. And so that oh. was like an actual game that he was playing oh, shit. with somebody, like on okay. set. Huh. Online gaming. Ingrid Bergman yeah. uh, was also five foot nine, which was two inches taller than Humphrey Bogart. Mm. We're about the same short height. Tall, tall queen. And he would either have to wear kind of like platforms or like heel inserts or kind of sit on cushions to appear taller mm. than her because nobody likes a short king, I guess. Mommy? No. <laughs> So, like Miles pointed out, th with this being filmed during World War II with Nazis oh, yeah. and the uniforms, a lot of the Nazis were played by German Jews who had escaped to America. What the fuck? What does that do to you, like, psychologically? Yeah, I don't know if I like that. So they were refugees. I mean, they got to help portray Nazis in a bad light. I, I, yeah. I guess, but you gotta so, be mean. And you gotta be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna play... A character that is actively destroying my community. So Paul Henry, who plays Victor Laszlo, he was an Austrian actor who in the 30s was deemed, quote, an official enemy of the Third Reich. Hmm. So the Nazis knew about him. And while he was working in Britain, World War II broke out. And he was considered an enemy alien because of his nationality. And he could have been deported or sent to an internment camp. But strangely, again, this is before filming. Conrad Veet, who plays Major Strasser in the film, they mm. knew each other and he vouched for him and Henry was allowed to continue working. And speaking of Conrad Veet, he was forced to flee Germany because he was known to hate Nazis and had a Jewish wife and several Jewish friends. Damn. And the SS had sent a death squad after him. Holy shit. And Plastic. he only played villains during World War II because he was convinced that playing Nazis would help the war effort if he depicted them in just like Is these just horrible, like, yeah. slimy, mm. sleazy, All right. 
batty ways. All right. I respect it. I yeah. respect okay. it now. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of all I have on the production. There's not that but, much. Well, I, just because some motherfucker had to make a Nazi uniform. Yeah. And then wear Someone it. working on this movie was like, Oh yeah, let me pull up some reference pictures of Nazis. But also at this time, um, this was kind of like the thing to do because it sold really well and it rallied the troops and like uh, kept- have you ever seen those like World War Two era Looney Tunes cartoons? Oh yeah, where it, it like depicts Hitler and like Mussolini and like Hirohito. And they're doing crazy stuff, and it's like, oh, I'm like, keep up morale. at a bar. And then they beat the shit out of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's all to like, keep up morale and like yeah. show the good guys and show the bad guys. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so to. just a little bit of post-production, mostly just kind of about the score and soundtrack. Max Steiner was hired by Warner Brothers to compose the score and really didn't want As Time Goes By to be a part of it. He just didn't like it. Oh. Um, but by the time that he'd kind of like properly voiced that, the film was already shot containing dialogue that references the song yeah. and Ingrid Bergman had cut her hair for her next film. So they were like, we're not doing reshoots, dude. Like, Damn. just keep it in. Hmm. So it stayed. And for the rest of the music, Steiner based his score kind of off of that and the okay. French national anthem for the lighter romantic moments. And then he used the German national anthem as the foundation for the moments in the score to kind of insinuate the German threat that was Strasser. And- I'll be honest. I, I actually did not pay much attention to the score oh, either. Thank God, it's not just me. This one. I mean, obviously in the big moments, I'd pay attention when, well, you you listen know, to the music when Sam's it, playing yeah. the music and, of course, when they're dueling between the two songs, but I did not listen There's to it. different variations of As Time Goes By that's like yeah. a little bit sad or a little bit like... I didn't really uh, Sinister's not quite the, quite the right word, but... Yeah, I didn't, I didn't pay attention as much as I feel like I normally do. Well, I did, and it was good. Mm. Also, in the film, they have like the Battle of the Anthems sequence yeah. where... The Germans start singing. I can't pronounce that. Ah, <laughs> um, so the French national anthem is played by the orchestra, and then the original opposing piece that the Germans sing was supposed to be, oh goodness, horse whistle Um, which is just like the Nazi, huh. the Nazi anthem, but that was under oh, that copyright in Wait. non-allied countries. Wait, Wait. <laughs> Wait. copyright law. By the Nazis. So basically, they could have been sued or had to pay royalties to the Nazis for using it. Oh, my God. So instead, they used Die Wacht am Rhein, which is just this, a different but so by But by the time this movie is getting made, I thought it, we, were, we were in the war. Correct. So Wait, I copyright law still stands, I guess. Really? The, I, I just had a That's vision. That's insane. I just had a vision of like a biting satire of modern war. Where they're fighting over copy copyright laws between like opposing forces. I just think that would be that's funny. I think that's a funny premise. Just the idea of like, um, just like the idea of Germany being like, "Hey, you owe us money because you used our music," and, and you're like, "My brother in Christ, we're we're shooting each we're other. shooting each other right we're past now." Past the point of like diplomacy and lawyers <laughs> yeah. are talking about <laughs> like. Um, but yeah, the one that they used is basically just a German patriotic anthem. Mm. So that's what they ended up using. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, very interesting because they didn't want to be, I guess, sued by the Nazis. That's so weird. Yeah. It, I'm telling you, this sounds like a like a wag the dog network-esque <laughs> yeah. kind of situation yeah. where it's just like, this is absurdity of life. Mm-hmm. Anyways. So the film was wrapped. 
Okay. It is set to be released in January of 1943, mm. but the studio pushed for a November 1942 release. Mm. Now, why would two months make a difference? Mm. Um, not for the Oscar qualifying reasons we see today, but so the film would coincide with Operation Torch, which yes, was sir. the Allied invasion of North Africa where Casablanca was seized. Interestingly enough, there were talks to change the original ending to have Rick, Renault, and some French soldiers on a ship to kind of connect it to that very invasion and plan. Mm. Um, but thankfully, the director, David O. Selznick, who we mentioned earlier, who had loaned Ingrid Bergman to them, Bergman to them um, he heard about it and said, you idiots, what the hell, that's stupid. Don't ruin the good ending. You have stupid, stupid, stupid. And I like said, it. That's cool. Okay. You're right. But I don't wait, think he likes it. I don't think he likes and it. And that was also, a direct quote. Was, was the whole... <laughs> thing just out in the open were they like hey we're gonna do a mission to africa uh or were no. they like privy to this information no 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 i th- I think it was just that like they knew that they had to like seize north africa yeah again. i think it yeah it was just one of those things where it wasn't like oh rick's part of operation torch the trajectory of where the war was going they know that like oh we need to invade africa okay and, like it's probably gonna because be he was already there time, i believe so. the plan was to be like oh this is kind of because again at the beginning they talk about how he ran guns and, yeah. and fought well no because what i'm saying is like they want to tie it into the invasion of africa mm. right but like in real life was the invasion of africa just like a known thing that no that's what no that's what i'm about? saying like i think the world understood that like this that's had the, to happen. that's the next step yeah um, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think I think the world just, just like, kind of knew, like, oh, this is the next step. This is going to happen soon. Like with us invading, like through Normandy, I think we kind of knew, yeah, like, we've got to get France. into Europe somehow. Something's got to happen. Someone's going to do a move at some point. Yeah. I think you just kind of like know logically. But okay. I, I, I could be wrong. I'm not like. I mean, well, it's not uncommon for America to be like not help but work with Hollywood. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. did, didn't we use like fucking actors as spies and shit? So I'm not, yeah, I'm not exactly sure where yeah. they maybe got their information to line it up exactly with Operation Torch, but anyway. But it's all up in the air, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Give, give a good like, uh, what do they call that, teaser, teaser announcement? Yeah. New album dropping. <laughs> they released it in November during Operation Torch, and then a mm. wide release was then scheduled for kind of the original January 1943, also coinciding with the Casablanca Conference. Oh. which was this conference between FDR and Churchill to discuss the next steps in World War II. So they were really just capitalizing on, like, with these all, events in the war to really up their marketability. Kind of gross. <laughs> yes, yeah. but, like, I get it. Um, so when this movie was released in Ireland, the film was banned um, due oh. to their policy of maintaining wartime neutrality since but, it was uh, very anti-Nazi and anti-Vichy. Wait, oh my God. I just realized I've I've never looked into what ireland was doing during World neither War II. did i because like just london's getting killing. bombed i guess maybe they like that <laughs> <laughs> so months before world war ii officially ended they did release an edited version where ilsa and rick don't really mention their love affair because again uh, scandalous mm, right warner did release a heavily heavily redacted version in west germany in 1952 that contained mm. no nazis How hardly any mention of the war and Laszlo was not a resistance fighter who escaped multiple camps, but he was a Norwegian atomic physicist being chased by Interpol. Oh. Um, so they removed okay. a total of 25 minutes of the film. Oh, shit. And this it wasn't until... Only 40, 140. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't until 1975 that the true version was released in Germany. How does that even function? Yeah. 
Yeah, you'd have to take out so much. Is that just a compilation of Humphrey Bogart going, here's looking at you, kid. Here's <laughs> looking at you, kid. Um, and altogether, the Playing film... Playing a song. <laughs> it's just all the lines. Uh, altogether, the film was not breaking any box office records, but it did very well. It grossed 225000 over 10 weeks at one theater alone, which is about $3.8 at one theater in Hollywood. Hmm. Um, overall, it grossed about over $3 million in the U.S. and another like three million abroad, which is about one hundred and fourteen million dollars today. Huh. So it did well. Okay. And uh, in nineteen forty-three, Casablanca was nominated for eight Oscars: Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor for Claude Rains, who played Captain Renault. Uh, screenplay, mm. cinematography, black and white specifically, editing, and mm. score. It would end up winning Best Director for Michael Curtiz, his only Best Director win out of the almost 200 films that he directed. It was his second overall Oscar, though, because he won for a short film he made a few years before called Sons of Liberty. The Epstein brothers and Howard Koch would win for Best Screenplay, something that Casey Robinson was not a part of, which he kind of did to himself by deciding he wouldn't take credit. So he didn't get an Oscar because of that, which is kind of a shame. And it also won Best Picture. What's interesting here is that Halby Wallace, the producer that we've mentioned, he was very integral to the film's making story and success. He got up to receive the award, but he was beaten to the stage by Jack L. Warner of Warner Brothers, who Wallace Mm. said had, quote, a broad flashing smile and a look of great (laughs) self-satisfaction. He said, I couldn't believe it was happening. Casablanca had been my creation. Jack had absolutely nothing to do with it. As the audience gasped, I tried to get out of the row of seats and into the aisle, but the entire Warner family sat blocking me. Damn. I had no alternative but to sit down again, humiliated and furious. Huh. Almost 40 years later, I still haven't recovered from the show. Oh, my God. Wow. And Wallace would leave Warner Brothers that following April. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Damn. Um, and from this, Humphrey Bogart also went to the number one place on the Warner Brothers roster, making him the highest paid actor of all time because it doubled his salary. Holy wow. shit. Yeah. Um, and again, he did not have confidence in it, and it did very mm. well for his career. Pull through. I wonder if that's what, like, Willem Dafoe's thinking when he's, you know, in Aquaman. <laughs> you never know. You never know. It might, you know, it might pull it might through. It might come through. And then it doesn't. <laughs> and then it doesn't. Um, and like I mentioned at the beginning, Casablanca is considered one of the all-time classic films, Uh, In 1989, it was one of the first 25 films to be included in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically important. There have been numerous lists from Time, AFI, numerous Mm -hmm. journals, you name it. Mm -hmm. It always includes Casablanca in their top 100, top 20, top 10. Um, The Writers Guild of America West also voted it the best screenplay of all time in 2006. Bandwagon, man. They're all just (laughs) sheep. Murray Burnett, the original writer of the play, called it True yesterday, true today, true tomorrow. Mm. And Ingrid Bergman said, I feel about Casablanca that it has a life of its own. There is something mystical about it. It seems to have filled a need, a need that there was before the film, a need that the film filled. And because of its success, of course, sequels were talked about immediately. I was going to say, it feels set up for a sequel. And I I kind of, I wouldn't mind a sequel of like two bros just like kissing. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Renal and uh, Rick like going off and... I want it to be like Lethal Weapon, where it just it gets more and more crazy every movie. Yeah, to the now point. The, the Nazis are hunting them. And they're and doing like somersaults off the Eiffel Tower and stuff. Yeah, it's like how uh, Die Hard started off just this guy 
getting out of the tower and then he's jumping helicopters mm-hmm. and yeah one idea for a sequel was brazzaville which is something that renault mentions very like like in one sentence hmm. um and it's a free french like held city so one idea was that renault and rick go off kind of on their next mission there That's is what a I said. film called a night in casablanca which came out in 1946 Warner put out a series in 1956 based on Casablanca. There was a 1981 remake. They all just did not do it. Mm. <laughs> they, d- they just didn't capture the magic. Uh, Francois Truffaut, the well-known mm. French director, was approached in 1974 to remake it, and he quickly declined um, because okay. of its status and yeah. quality as a standalone film in no need of a remake. Yeah, there. <laughs> That's fine. There's a Looney Tunes Carrot Blanca Hell yeah. That I now must put on my watch list. Oh, fuck yeah. Where Daffy Duck is Sam, Tweety Bird is Ugarte, and Bugs is Rick. That that makes perfect sense. There's also a film that was made in 1980 called Cabo Blanco that is widely considered just like a South American remake of Casablanca. Hmm. And a 1990 film called Havana starring Robert Redford that they were not received well at all. Hmm. Viewed as just knockoffs essentially. And the general consensus is that Casablanca is a classic and should remain a classic. The captured magic, which cannot be replicated or remade, and truly it should be left alone and treasured. And that concludes what I have on Casablanca. And I'll just give you guys a few little tidbits of trivia to round it out before I turn it it over to you. First off, Bill Gold is the illustrator for the poster of Casablanca. He is responsible for numerous movie posters you would recognize. And Casablanca was only his second poster he worked on. Which wow. is crazy. He also did the posters for Rope, oh. a streetcar named Desire, okay. The Searchers, wow. My Fair Lady, Cool okay. Hand Luke, wow. The Wild Bunch. I really like the Cool Hand Luke poster. A Clockwork Orange, The Exorcist, The Sting, and a Platoon. Wow. Just to name a few. This man worked Damn. on like hundreds. Uh, anyway, he's a really cool guy and I wanted to shout him out. Really neat. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's cool. One of the things that people know the most about this film is that... The line, here's looking at you, kid, was not in any of the screenplay drafts. It was improv And its origin is like a little bit hazy. Okay. Most people say that it's because they were playing poker offset like uh, Bogart and Bergman. And he said it to her while they were playing poker. But the line, here's looking at you, kid, does appear like in 30s media. So it's yeah. possible that he pulled it from that. So Okay. Anyway, he just said it. The mad just, lad, the mad lad actually said it. He just fucking said it. And the film is famous for many of its lines. Mm-hmm. Round up the usual suspects. This could be the start of a beautiful friendship. We'll always have Paris of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world. Here's looking at you, kid, and play it again, Sam, which is never said in the film. Mm-mm. Rick says play it, and Ilsa says play it, Sam, but nobody says play it again, Sam. Idiots. It's those dumb fucks that also think he says, no, Luke, I am your father. Mm-hmm. Fools. He says, I'm your stepdaddy. I'm your papa. After the movie was released, as time goes by, did spend 21 weeks on the charts. I would imagine. Yep. It was originally from the 30s, so it wasn't written for the film. It did very well, and uh, mm-hmm. Steiner, who did the score, was like, all right, maybe it has something to it. <laughs> Mm, um mm. and if you look at the dates in the film the ending scene takes place on december 5th 1941 just two days before oh, japan attacks wow. the u.s damn yeah so that's Crazy. all i got for you guys and Let's that is that. casablanca that's casablanca it's casablanca no we don't even talk about that now 
We just consider sure my brother's it, favorite. Yeah, I'm it's, sure. yeah, it's my brother's favorite film. This episode's for you, Samuel. That's how I know this movie. Casablanca. This one's for you, Sam. Mariah's brother's favorite film. All right. Anyway, over to you guys now. Over to over to us to talk about the movie. Miles, I know this film is so far out of the wheelhouse of films that you would normally watch. Yeah. All right, so I'm Miles. very curious to hear your thoughts because we did watch it together. We did watch it together. I paid. I paid attention. <laughs> that sounds not real, but I did do my best <laughs> to hmm. sit hmm. down and watch this movie. It is not in my wheelhouse. It is not a movie that I would find myself ever watching on my own. This was the first time you've seen it, correct? The first time I've ever seen it. First time I ever planned to, I think. <laughs> it just, like, exists, I think. I, I don't know, man. It's just there. <laughs> like it, it didn't do anything crazy. Nothing that, you know, the lighting? Okay, well, Nosferatu did that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, what, soft lighting? Stefan's noted I, that it's in a bunch of other movies in the same era. It's cool that it's a movie about World War II written during World War II before we had gotten into it, and then it you know comes out during and all that jazz. But I'm sure that's not unique to it either. Yeah, I <laughs> will <know>? say, <laughs> like, I feel like when it comes to movies and it comes to old movies, like you know, 40s and so forth, you people either like them or they don't like them, or you're kind of like, eh. I'm someone I I like old movies, but I don't like like them. Because, you know, they've got a different kind of stank to them, you know, like yeah. 40s, 50s, like they feel different. And like, I, I like them, I can enjoy them, but no, most often I'm not like, wow, you know? And I think this movie, the appeal that I see as someone who lives in the 21st century, you know, as someone who lives 2024, the appeal is A, that it was made during World War II and all the production stuff that went into that. Yeah. I think when we talked about, oh, it, you know, was re-envisioning different ways to film a movie in terms of like how kinetic the camera is, where it's going, the way they do the lighting. But those are things that we do now plus tenfold. So you have to think yeah. about it in the mind of like, oh, this is what it used to be like and this is how they improved it, but it's going to look like nothing to us because we're used to so much crazier stuff. And so I mean, you have I'm to, you kind of have to have that like, like, oh, this is cool because of what it meant for the time. But if you don't have that or if you don't really care, then you're kind of like, mm. the thing is, it might just be like the hyper specific thing that I like, mm. but that's one of the reasons I like star Wars and stuff is because visual effects aren't done that way anymore. Yeah. And so I could watch that and be like, Oh, like look at how they used to do these things. Yeah. With Casablanca. I just don't feel that at all. <sighs> like C Casablanca didn't, really do a whole lot for me personally I however so i think my favorite aspect of it is when it comes to the story and i was saying this during the movie and the plot is i think like victor laszlo is who would normally be the protagonist he has fled the nazis he's an upright man anytime he see he sees injustice he immediately acts on it i mean what he does when they start doing the dueling symphonies like he jumps to that and there's a moment where we see rick kind of being like oh uh, like, like I guess I'll support this, but he's the one who does it. He has the initiative to like get things done, and he's like single handedly, you know, fighting his own war against the Nazis. And it's like that's really admirable. And he would be the main character, the protagonist who gets the girl and wins the day, and blah blah blah. But instead, we follow Rick, who's like not a bad guy, but he's just a middle guy. He doesn't care. He wants out of it. He's in this limbo realm where he's like shut himself off from the world, and he had this affair with this woman. 
who's supposed to go to who I think is like, oh, our protagonist guy. And just like, I like that concept that we're not following the big hero. We're kind of following the guy who's stuck in the middle of the big hero's like triangle. And that was like, that was the most interesting facet of it to me. And also, I appreciate that when Rick does his little like secret plan to get Elsa on the plane. Mm-hmm. Of course, we don't we don't know that. We don't know he's going to do that. That's something that's revealed to us later. Yeah. Which is, I mean, nothing crazy. Like, it's not like movies don't do that. But I think it was just a good choice I mean, for this film. It's just like, and this is just, I'm just I guess I'll just jump into also my rating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But ahead. none of that. I like I agree with everything you've said. Mm-hmm. None of that dictates to me that this is a top 20 movie. I, this is, right, I swear to God, you'll get a chance here to talk. It's hard because I don't, I like old movies and I know we need to cherish them and respect them for what they meant and what they've gotten us to in terms of like where we are now with filmmaking. But I do think sometimes there is a little bit of like obligation where people are like, we have to say it. You see it a lot in like the video game community. People are like, oh, like, the Mario Brothers 3 is like the best Mario Brothers because blah, blah, blah. I'm like, is it, is it really though? Do you yeah, see, is it, do you get the same amount of fun playing Mario Brothers 3 that you do like a new game that came out last year? Like really? And they'll be like, oh, Legend of Zelda, you know, the time one or what, Ocarina of Time is the best one. I'm like, really? Did you play Breath of the Wild yeah. and you, you, you didn't, you got less fun out of this new game with all these crazy features than you did the last one? Or do you just you feel obligated to say that because that's what everyone says? No, I agree, and that's why I was like, it seems kind of bandwagony that all these people are like, "Oh, top ten, top 20, This is movie so it's like, but I don't know, man. I mean, despite that, I do, I do think this is a good movie. Me personally, I think it's a good movie. I do enjoy it. it it's not my top twenty. Yeah, Mariah. I don't think it's like my in my personal top twenty. That mm-hmm. being said, I think I'm definitely going to be rating it higher than you guys. Mm-hmm. I th- I think it's fucking great. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very Damn, I really? think it's a very good movie. Yeah, like Stefan was pointing out with, you know, Laszlo is more of the heroic lead, mm-hmm. you know, fighting the Nazis, whereas Rick is just trying to stay neutral and out of the way. But I, yeah, I do find that very interesting. Where you have this man who doesn't want to make a decision, and then he makes a decision by the end. Yeah, that is a very much a political statement. He kills a Nazi <laughs> mm-hmm. after saying, oh, I don't know who's going to win the war. Oh, I don't know. Like, I, th- I think that's very interesting. I, the first time I watched this, I was, I was probably in high school, I think. Mm-hmm. And I will say... I th- You've also seen this much more than we have. Yeah. Um, I think the first time I watched it, I was bummed that Ilsa and Rick didn't end up together. And then, like, now when I see it, yeah. I'm like, this is the perfect ending mm-hmm. because she does need to go with him and Rick needs to stay here. And the way that he orchestrated all this to work out is great. Yeah. So I really like the ending. My, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, go for it. Okay. I was just going to say, I don't think he kills a Nazi as much as he kills someone in his way. Mm, interesting interpretation that, that he's killing. Like it's not because he's a Nazi, but because yeah. he's, Interrupting the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I also like that he kind of turns Renault around yes. a little bit. I mm. like, that's the other part of this. I said this before, this is just like a bro movie. It's like guys, bros doing, I don't, you know, lady, whatever. Guys, 
bros will walk off and the guy walks off into the sunset with the, Ooh, the, with the bro buddy. yeah you know and so that's why i think it also feels his um, roommate his counter his roommate his like really close platonic friend yeah um very like counteractive to a lot of the hollywood movies we see from this era where it's like oh the good guy always gets the woman and they always go off and have a family and this one's like no, i didn't get the girl but he's got his homie i also love the dialogue I think it is a very good script. I mm. love the quickness of older films' dialogues. I mean, like Some Like It Hot is one of my f- favorite films, mm-hmm. and you know that's from the fifties. And like they'll say a line that's funny, and it takes you like two seconds to like laugh. You know, I really like that. I I I come I come and go with old movie dialogue where. Sometimes I'm like, I like this. I like what they're doing, and then sometimes I'm like, they're talking so weird. Like it's so rigid and like. The rhythm is odd. I it's kind of hard to explain. I, I don't and I don't have exact proof or like instances, but sometimes I listen to them talking and I'm like, what what are they even saying? Like they're talking funny. But anyways. Yeah, I really like this movie. Um mm-hmm. it's my brother's favorite movie of like all time. Um Sorry, Sam. But yeah, I, I had a lot like of I had a person. lot of fun researching it and I think it's the way that they mm-hmm. shot it is interesting with you know, starting off with only half a script and then yeah. um shooting it sequentially and yeah, the timing of it all and how they kind of adjusted for the current war that was going on, I find very fascinating. So, yeah. yeah and I, I should we just get into ratings? Cool. Yeah, Let's sure. do it. Let's do it. Mariah. Yeah, my score is going to be higher than your guys', I believe. Yeah. Sure. I'm going to give this 8.7 Peter Laurie's Bug Eyes <laughs> out of 10 <sighs> um, for all the reasons that I just stated. So, uh, I'm going to give it 7.5. Bottles of booze. Oh, that's what I was because, gonna do. Uh, everyone's drinking, and also Rick is a really—he can hold his alcohol well. Yeah. The scene where he's supposed to be like shit-faced, and Ilsa walks in, and he—no slurs, nothing. He's just kind of slumped over, and he's, he's like, like uh, he slurs a little bit, a little bit. But I don't know. He's like a a bottle of whiskey deep, or whatever he's drinking. I feel like at that point, be like. Oh, Rick, what are you doing here? And he turns to her and he goes. I <laughs> 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 down anyways all right moms. i might adjust that score i'm not gonna adjust my score i'm giving this shit oh uh, <laughs> oh that's not good five <laughs> <laughs> just boys being boys, boys. out of ten boys. just a solid five this out of ten shit mid <laughs> i don't i get it you know look you know you're asking the you're asking the guy that loves like big spectacular effects and mm-hmm. and to be mm-hmm. dazzled on the screen like hey what do you think of this slow paced black and white <laughs> movie that just kind of like talks about this guy's feelings <laughs> oh uh i don't know it was pretty okay i guess no we all we all have our the little specialties I, it's the same with musicals it's like i don't give a fuck about musicals yeah i can't yeah, wait yeah. to make you watch my next pick two two out of ten <laughs> all right well, yeah. speaking of speaking, our next picks, yeah, I was about to say, speaking of picks, Miles, what's the next episode? Uh, this may or may not be a f- you may or may not consider this a first for us. I will be uh-huh. doing a full on documentary. Ooh! Uh, so we're gonna, we're going to be watching Free Solo. Oh, oh very cool. Okay. Uh, you know, maybe first I'm time impressed. doing a documentary very because cool. Prison Man. What Bronson? Bronson. Oh, Bronson. Maybe Bronson nah. was a documentary. Nah, or no, nah, it's like a biopic. It's a biopic. Like uh, RV people. 
Oh, Nomadland was kind of oh, documentary, no, Nomad but, but it was still a narrative. Free Solo is full doc. Yeah, Free Solo is full documentary, full on dockies. Mm-hmm. So no. we're going to talk about that. Very cool. cool. Sweet. Well, until our next episode, you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram at the takes it took. And if you have any email that you'd like to send us, any corrections to today's episode, any suggestions for future episodes, you can hit us up at the takes it took at gmail.com. But in the meantime, stay safe, have fun, watch movies, and we will catch you in the next one. And um, here's looking at you, kid. Bye. Bye. Bye.